0: following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. All right, now let's get to Psalm 22. Uh, As you probably already figured out, we're continuing through the Psalms uh, and We uh, come into Psalm 22 today, uh, and it's really, it's very fitting that we find ourselves in Psalm 22 in these few weeks leading up to Good Friday. Uh, That being, if you're not familiar with what Good Friday is, that's the day we commemorate the death of Jesus, and then we have Easter or Resurrection Sunday three days later. And so we're now three weeks out from that, and uh, it's, it's really appropriate that we are in Psalm 22. Uh, Jesus quotes from this psalm while hanging on the cross, and that's a fact that many of you will recognize as soon as we read the first verse. Uh, now, it's actually quite difficult. I talked last week about this idea of both near and far fulfillment when it comes to prophecy. Sometimes reading through the psalms, um, and in other places, you'll, you'll see that the, the events being described, it it, it was something that had happened or, uh, w- w- was about to happen in that near term time frame, but that it, and so there's a fulfillment in that way, but then it also then maybe has a far fulfillment where it's looking forward or foreshadowing, uh, something else that was going to happen. So what I want you to know is it's, it's really quite difficult to find a set of corresponding events in the life of King David who authored this Psalm, uh, it's it's quite hard to find any any corresponding events, particularly as the psalm goes on, one through ten that we're going to look at today. You might be like, yeah, I don't know, maybe. But as it continues, man, it really starts to seem like this was forward looking, and that idea has it's led some to think that this is almost entirely forward looking uh, in terms of its prophetic sense. Or it may be a little of both mixed in there. But we're going to focus primarily on on the far fulfillment how this psalm that God uh, anointed David in that time to prophetically write this poem, this song, and uh, that what it was doing was was primarily uh, looking forward and that Jesus obviously thought that as he was thinking about it clearly as he hung on the cross for our sins. Uh, Now, I, I know many of us think of David as a king. You may think of him as a warrior, maybe as a poet, but Peter, and I, and I want to tell you this because I, I know some of you may not think of David in this way, and you may even think, man, look, here's what I think might be happening. Maybe you're a little skeptical, and that's okay. Uh, the Lord's not afraid of anybody's questions. You might think, you know, Christians, they're always looking at the Old Testament, they're looking at the Psalms, and it's like, you know, maybe anything that sounds like it could possibly fit, they're, they're wanting to make these connections, maybe even stretching to fabricate these connections, okay? You know, you're looking in hindsight, and now you're you're pointing backwards. You're kind of making stuff up a little bit. Well, I want you to know that the apostle Peter he called David a prophet in Acts chapter two. Let me read this to you. Acts two, starting in twenty nine. Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So, because he was a prophet and knew that God, because he was a what, a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That's actually a reference to something else David wrote, not Psalm 22. Point being, the apostle Peter, uh, head honcho among the apostles, rolled around with Jesus uh, for quite some time. He said David was a prophet. And so for us to look to the Psalms for prophecy is, is not, we're not doing some weird New Testament thing where we're making stuff up, okay? We're not doing, we're not stretching, okay? This is a guy personally trained by Jesus, saw it this way. I think that should basically settle the issue for us. Amen. <clears throat> now, many of you also know, you may think of David as uh, a king or, or a warrior or a prophet, or hopefully now a prophet, or a poet, but many, uh, many of you may also know, and if you don't, you're about to, David was a sinner. He committed adultery, and he had a man killed to try to cover it up. There was other areas of his life, um, other instances where far less than perfect. Um, but the fact that God would use someone to accomplish his will who is guilty of such terrible sin if they will humbly repent, that fact, it should be a great encouragement to all who are aware that they too have sinned greatly. And when I say it should be a great encouragement to all those who are aware they have sinned greatly, the inference is you should be aware that you have sinned greatly in case you didn't catch it. I didn't want to leave that as an inference. (laughs) I just want to make it real plain. That's all of us, friends. We're going to break this psalm up into three pieces, and that will lead us right up into the week of Easter. My hope is, my prayer is, it should help us prepare our hearts to remember and to rejoice with renewed vibrance as we could think of the death and the resurrection of our Savior King. And so I hope that you're not uh, thinking, man, three weeks, you know, we're, we're doing Good Friday. Isn't that enough? Oh, friends. To set our eyes and our hearts upon the sacrifice of our Savior and His resurrection, that's, that, that's part of our daily bread, man. That's it. It's the crown jewel of our faith. It's the crescendo of God's redemption, right? And so we can't overdo it. And to spend three weeks is, is not nearly enough leading up to this time where yearly, we come down to a point of reckoning to focus again upon these things. So let's read this psalm together. Uh, As I said, 22 verses 1 through 10. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Praise God for his word. Amen. So let's look at verse one. The question, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? And what is the answer? Is there an answer? We see at least a glimpse. We see an arrow in the right direction in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul writes this. He said, He, that being God, made Him, that being Jesus, who knew no sin, who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the bottom line answer to the question, why was Jesus in a position to feel as if God had forsaken him? This is sometimes referred to as, has been throughout church history, as the great exchange. There was a need for somebody to step in and take the punishment we all deserve because... The wages of sin is death, so somebody needed to die. It was either going to be all of us who sin, which is who? That's a good chance for you to say me, right? The wages of sin is death. That should have been me, so somebody was going to have to die. It's either all of us, or it's a perfect, holy, sacrificial lamb, foreshadowed all throughout the old covenant system, pointed to that this was God's plan of redemption all along, and yet we find out the fulfillment of it was never that the blood of bulls and goats was going to be able to fully and finally solve the problem. That God himself was going to have to come, take on flesh, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, tempted in every way that we are, but we tempted and fell, he tempted and did not. That's why he said, him who knew no sin. So the perfect one earned the right, he came as a human to stand in our place and came as God to have the power to do it. And he ended up having to feel what we should have felt, forsaken of God, separated from God. Now, the details of exactly what all that means, that Jesus had the full wrath of God that was meant for us, rightly, poured out upon him, that he felt this sense of being forsaken, the details of all of that are probably beyond our grasp. But we know what we know about it, and that's enough. It's enough to know that God had a plan, that Christ was in on it. This was set before the foundations of the world. The Scriptures tell us the Lamb of God, He calls Him the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. God knew before ever making humanity that we would sin and we would fall. there There was going to be a need of redemption, and this incredible price paid in order for us to have in the end what has always been the goal. And that's us and him forever. I'm so thankful, so thankful that that is his goal, that he has any desire for us and him forever. He's far more gracious and merciful and loving than I am. Okay? Because if I would have looked at all of us, if I had a chance ahead of time to see how much trouble we'd be, I think I'd have skipped it. And yet, and it's not that God had some need, you understand. That's why it's so beautiful. With the the, the Trinity existing forever in reverse, for eternity past, there was full love and relationship and all that would have been needed, right? God could have just created the angels and stopped there, but there there was something in him that desired, though we'd be as much trouble as we are and have been, to create us to pour his love out on us and to have fellowship and relationship with us forever. Friends, man, it's amazing. So much much more could be said about it. To, To think about that, to ponder that, to meditate on that. It's only good for you. Amen. I'm thankful for the great exchange. Verse two he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. In anguish over the expectation of the steep price of suffering that he was about to pay for our redemption, Jesus did cry out to the Father in the garden. And in that time, there really was no answer other than the one that they had planned together before the foundation of the world. Matthew 26, 36 gives us a window into this event. It says, Then Jesus came with them, that's the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. But then, Jesus, we, we, we see no response from the Father recorded, and then Jesus finishes that prayer. Listen closely, see if you hear the echo of Psalm 22. Jesus said, Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And here we see verse one, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse two, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. Verse three, yet, there's a transition. I hear an echo. Yet, you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. How can you feel abandoned and forsaken by God and at the same time say something like, yet not as I will, but as you will. How is that possible? How can those those things be reconciled? How can you you be feeling forsaken, abandoned, and and yet make a statement that communicates such trust to totally relinquish what I think would be best in this situation, what I I want, the pain I want to avoid, and to say, Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That's not the quote from NASB, but for some reason that's... I tried to find it. I don't even know what translation that is, but that's the way I always remember it. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Not as I will, but as you will. How do you do that? Well, you consider the things we see here. First of all, the first thing we see written in Psalm 22, yet, his pivot point is, you are holy. So, to remember, to contemplate, to have our hearts and minds full of the reality of God's holiness, of His perfection, of the fact that He is set apart, that He defies categories, He breaks all of our boxes. For Him to be that for us helps us in the times where we would be tempted in feeling abandoned or forsaken. To withdraw our trust, to, to decide I, I may know better. Oh, no, no, that can't be possible because I'm not holy like he's holy. I'm not perfect like he's perfect. Keeping the very nature of God, his, the fact that he is set apart the way he is, that he exists on such far higher of a plane in thought and deed than we could ever possibly even imagine. This helps us, it stabilizes us in those times when there is is a sense of distance or a sense of disconnect or a sense of somehow that we're thinking God is wronging us, that he's maybe not being faithful. Well, friends, the fact that he's holy will remind you he can't help himself. He has to be faithful. He has to. He can do no other thing other than to be true to his word, other than to do all things for the good of those whom he loves. And that so happens to be us. Amen. It says also, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. I I talked about that at the beginning of the service. And, you know, I couldn't tell you how many times I've read Psalm 22, but that's the beauty of the Bible. It's, It's the living word of God. And this time through this hit me in a way that never hit me before and I never took a minute to think about what that means. It sounds maybe like just flowery kind of poetic pump up, you know, let's raise the roof type stuff, but think about think about the fact this idea that David writes as if God's throne is constructed by that's that's what the language would point us to, the praises of his people and even if it's not in a, in a literal sense, think, think, think about what that means, right? Think about what that means when we are gathered together singing his praises, when we are in the midst of our week in both times of, of ease and times of difficulty, stopping in the midst of all that's happening to take a moment to lift praise to him. The the throne I imagine somehow the praises of God's people raising to the heavens and, and somehow being being used to to make this 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 throne that he sits upon ever more glorious, ever more majestic. What a thought. Makes me want to praise more is what I'm saying. I hope it does for you. I want to be a part of building that throne. What else do we see? It says, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. It's another way to say, He's always faithful. To you they cried out, and they were delivered. In you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. What does that mean, man? When you you think about the patriarchs, who is in David's mind when he talks about the fathers? Well, he's got to be thinking about Noah. He's got to be thinking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's got to be thinking about Joseph and Moses and Joshua, right? He's thinking about the fathers, the ones that had come before him in the timeline that participated in God's plan of redemption. Yes? Let's think about them. Were they without disappointments, period? No, right? (laughs) Noah had a rough go hey, build a boat, you're going to get laughed at a lot. It's going to take you, I don't know, roughly 80 to 100 years. You're going to be scorned, rejected. It's been a big bulk of your life building this boat. Oh, yeah, and, and we're way away from any big body of water, so that's going to make you look even more like a joke. You're going to be responsible for uh, us being able to hit the reset button on this thing because wickedness has gotten to the point where it can't be undone any other way. That's, that's a disappointing word. Was Abraham disappointed? Man, the, the cry of his heart was to have his own offspring. Thought all that he owned was going to have to go to Eleazar, a servant. But God was faithful. Outside of the timeline, I'm sure that Abraham would have preferred. Right? Go to Isaac and, and Jacob and, and challenges. <laughs> go to Joseph. Challenges on challenges. Moses didn't have it easy. They all had disappointments, but, but how can he say... In you they trusted and were not disappointed because ultimately there were disappointments, but God was not a disappointment. God was faithful through it all. God was working through it all. When they could and they couldn't see, when they could and they couldn't understand what was happening, they came to the place of being able to realize, to understand and, and stand firmly on this fact, God will not disappoint. Disappoint. That doesn't mean you won't be disappointed in this life. Actually, the word promises us in as many ways as you can possibly imagine, yes, you will have trials and difficulties. There will be disappointments. But the disappointments will not be sourced from God. It will not be from the Lord. It will not be him ultimately failing to be faithful to his word. That is not gonna happen. That disappointment's not coming. That shoe isn't dropping. Amen. Man, I'm so glad. There's not too many things anymore or maybe ever that you can count on with that kind of confidence. The Lord is not coming up short on his word, on his promises. He will not disappoint. Real, real thankful for that. So what does that mean? That means ultimately what I'm saying is you can feel forsaken But you can remain faithful by remembering God always is. At the end of it all, you can can feel the feelings we see described. You can feel the feelings that even Jesus, our master, related to as he went through the greatest trial, the greatest suffering that any human has ever had to endure. These feelings can come, they can even wash over us, but ultimately, we can remain faithful as we walk through those times of difficulty by primarily remembering, anchoring ourselves in the faithfulness of God. Our faithfulness is a reflection of his faithfulness. The power and strength to be able to stand in the midst of something so difficult that, that, that words would, would leave our mouths, or, or maybe for some of us, it would just, it, they would just dwell in our hearts. My God, it feels like you're forsaking me my God, I'm crying out day and night and I am feeling like there is no answer. How do you you live in that and not crumble into a place of great disappointment and or unfaithfulness yourself where we walk away from the Lord? It's being convinced more and more. It's filling our hearts and minds more and more. It's always considering Keeping in front of us the holiness of God, His perfection, His faithfulness in the past, and taking that and by faith applying it to the future, because of what I have seen Him do, not only in His Word but in my own life, I know that this current thing I'm going through, where man, the disappointments are real, the struggle is real. What it doesn't mean, though I I may be pressed, I'm not going to be crushed. Thank God that he keeps us. Verses six through eight. says, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. We've picked that one back up in modern times, haven't we? We know about wagging the head. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. These are the scoffers speaking now. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Thick, thick layer of sarcasm upon these words. Okay? And what I'm saying is, to walk in the kind of faith-filled loyalty we see lay out in these first few verses for anybody to do that. David felt this at different times. Jesus obviously experienced this. If we live in that kind of faith-filled loyalty to the Lord, it will invite scoffing and even mocking from those who see it as foolishness. And this, of course, is another way that the, uh, the forward-looking nature of Psalm 22 is, is undeniable. Let me read you this from Matthew 27, starting in verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. This is at the scene of the crucifixion and saying... So imagine this. Imagine the lack of compassion and mercy for a man who had rolled around the countryside, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, preaching the good news of the kingdom, to be hung upon a cross, bleeding, dying. This this is what was being said by scribes and elders and chief priests even. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He is trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Sounds a lot like what I hear in Psalm 22. Oh, look, if he delights in God, God should rescue him. Oh man, if these scoffers only knew. I mean, first of all, can we just consider for a moment? I know, I, we've, because of where we're at in the Psalms, there's, there's been recurring themes even over the, the, the whole time we've been back in this book over the last several weeks, and I, I know that, but the repetition is not bad for us, it is good for us. I know there is struggle for many to wrap their heads around the wrath of God at all, the need for the cross at all, I, I, I get that. But we're, 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 we're stepping right into the middle of the, these ideas, and this is now is the time to consider it again, because it can get heavy, it can get hard to process. and I think what happens oftentimes is we, we get in so far, but start to feel overwhelmed or confused and just just step back from it, but let's press into it. That's what I'm encouraging us towards. If that is a struggle for you, let's think about it. Are the wrath of God and the love of God incompatible? Well, the first thing I want you to see is the incredible patience and love and compassion of God shown in the restraint. Of Christ upon the cross because it wasn't that long before this that when they're in the garden and 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 the, the Judas brings the the soldiers to come and get Jesus and Peter being Peter my man Peter right jumps up with a sword I mean I gotta say I relate to Peter all the foot and mouth stuff all the less action man but not the right actions all that stuff right overly aggressive at times Peter my man Everyone else is like, what are, are we running? What? They're looking for a word from somebody. Peter's like, nope, sword out. <laughs> Boom, there goes the ear of the, of the high priest's servant. that Didn't talk to Jesus about it. Didn't, didn't look for permission. I'm chopping ears. That's what we're doing right now, okay? And here's what's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all, we, we like, some, you know, some, we got hindsight, so we like to give Peter a hard time. I feel bad for Peter in, in a lot of the stories because, you know, and I could, I, if I was there, I for sure would have thought that was the right thing to do as well. Like, okay, it's yep, it's go time, it's sword time. Been waiting for sword time, it's here. But what does Jesus do? Jesus heals the guy's ear and he says something very, it's really applicable to what we're talking about here. He says to Peter, man, bro, don't you think if, if it was what I wanted to happen, I could call out to the father and have 12 legions of angels here right now to handle this. I mean with what you've seen and heard don't you understand I don't need your sword. Okay? Well, what does that mean about the restraint that Jesus is showing as he hangs there to bleed and die for these very mockers and scoffers standing at the bottom of this cross how much must it be love and compassion and long-suffering patience motivating him? But in that in in all of the humanity, that in that moment he didn't snap that finger that brought the legions of angels? What does it say about the love of God, the patience of God, the purposes of God towards us? I mean, how many of us in our foolishness at times have mocked and scoffed at either God himself or those who are foolish enough to blindly trust him in the way we see? Here's the thing. We do walk by faith and not by sight. Unapologetically, he's given us the reason to do that. And he's graced us with his power. We we do look foolish to many. Amen. Give me a dunce hat. I'll wear it gladly. As long as it says Jesus on it. But the other thing we should consider, friends, is that this kind of scoffing and mocking And I know some of you, you know, this is real. Some of you really deal with the pressure of workplace dynamics, difficult situations, family dynamics, where there are those who would believe that for somebody to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm crying out to you by day and by night. And yet you are holy. And yet I trust you. And not my will, but yours be done. For you to, for you to exist in that seeming nonsensical tension, you, many of you have people in your life that will mock either to your face or behind your back. Many of you have felt the sting of someone thinking you're just a little too intense about this stuff. You may be a little too much. Maybe you should just back it up a bit. But man, I, you can't just back it up a bit. <laughs> The response to this kind of love, the response to this kind of holiness, is not some half-hearted, one foot in, one foot out reaction. It's either a bowed knee and a declaration (laughs) of loyalty. You're either, and that's what people like to try to do with Jesus. They like to try to put him in this middle box that doesn't exist. Oh, he's a nice teacher, taught some really nice precepts. I think the Sermon on the Mount's pretty cool for the most part. But all of that other stuff, well, you know, I don't know. But Jesus just, friends, he just didn't leave us that option. First of all, if you like the Sermon on the Mount, but you don't like all the stuff about like Jesus is Lord and you should worship him, um, you probably didn't read the Sermon on the Mount very close because, boy, man, Um, it's it's not just like a bunch of fluffy, nice moral stuff like a lot of people think it is, man. It's setting a bar so dang high that what it's meant to do is let you know you need a savior and a Lord. That's the whole point of basically all of Jesus' teachings and all of the scriptures. You ain't gonna do it on your own. That wasn't a very theological way to say it, but I thought I'd break it down. To the simplest way I could think of. You ain't gonna get it. You need a king and a savior stronger than you, one willing to die for you, to take your place so that you can become the righteousness of God in him. You're gonna need you're gonna need carried to the finish line of this race. And if that's the case, then having some kind of Oh yeah, well, you know, I'm going I'm to try to find some kind of comfort zone lane to run on this thing and just, let's not be too extreme. Well, I don't know. Going to the cross for me was pretty extreme. I'd like to respond as much as possible in like kind. He's shown love and compassion and a zeal for me. That, he, that when you got... When, and, and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, man, look at... Again, I'm circling back around to those of you that struggle with the wrath of God. I get it. I understand. But man, think about this. These were the guys that ticked Jesus off the most when he was alive. These are the guys that were running around in self-righteousness and teaching others that if you adhere to our list of rules, that's what the whole Old Testament was about. And that's what it's going to mean to be saved. Totally leading the sheep of Israel, God's Israel, astray. These are the ones where Jesus said, you brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. How are you going to escape hell? Those are the ones that were then at the bottom of the cross, wagging their heads, talking about, oh, well, he said he was the son of God. He delights in the Lord. Why doesn't he come on down? What? If your primary picture of God is this wrathful God looking to just deal out vengeance all the time, man, check, check it against that, please. Cause I'm telling you, if that was me and I could come down off the cross, I don't know if this would have messed the whole thing up, but I would, I'd have got down, kicked them dudes in the head. And then it's like, all right, well, nail me up again. If just, I just, who do you think you are? And yet Jesus hung there and his response was, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This kind of—I know this is real. I know many of you struggle with this kind of scoffing and mocking, or a fear of it, even. But friends, for us, it should be like blind men making fun of us for having sight. How many of you are gonna are gonna walk up to a, a local store and, and walk right up and, and grab the handle and go in, and you got a, a blind gentleman off to the side going, "Ha! You loser! Look at you being able to see stuff! You idiot!" Didn't even have to use a stick to find that door. He just walked right up and grabbed the handle, you, you dork. I mean, how many of you are going to be like, oh man, I feel really bad now? Like, no, uh, buddy, you're in trouble <laughs> with your worldview um, or your lack of view of the world. Um, I didn't mean to make that joke. If that was insensitive to blind people, I didn't mean that. But here's my point for us to let scoffers and mockers, okay, about having zeal and trust in the Lord make us feel some type of way about that is is basically like us letting somebody that's blind make us feel bad for having sight or make us feel foolish for having sight. When I really run it through that grid, it's like, "Mm, well, forgive me, Lord, if that ever worked, if that ever created one ounce of hesitation in me to live a life of full devotion and zeal as a reflection and a response to the zeal and devotion he showed me in all that he's done. We're almost there, friends. I can smell lunch as well, I promise. Just give me, give me 10 more minutes and then you can just check, I know, you know. We were joking earlier that if that smell started to come in here, I was gonna start noticing more people go to the bathroom. I feel, well, I need 10 minutes, man, hang in there. This is good. Let's finish this out. This is good for us. <clears throat> what are the insults of mere men when God has made us and loved us from eternity past? And that's where our attention turns as we go to this next couple of verses, 9 and 10. What are the insults of mere men when it is God who has made us and he has loved us from eternity past? Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb and you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you I was Cast from birth, you have been my God from my mother's womb. You see, companion to this idea that when God was commissioning the prophet Jeremiah, he said to him in chapter 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. It's this idea, friends, and it's, it's a mind bender. Let's be really, really honest about that that God has existed in eternity past. I've told you guys before, like kids ask the greatest questions and Max hit me one time, this idea of, I just wanna, re, I wanna acknowledge with all of you how hard it is to imagine eternity in reverse. Never a start time. Can we be honest? I mean, if, <laughs> if you're having trouble being, being in your proper place in respect to God's perfection and holiness, grandeur, majesty, and all of that, Try to think about eternity in either direction, really. And when you go... Then go, oh, okay, yeah, that's part of why I'm not God, amen. That's why I need to worship somebody other than myself. Because I can't even get that one, honestly, <laughs> right? Okay, but but the, the time forever, and, and in all of that, right? The bef- before... The timeline got to the point where the practicality of your parents' meeting and all that then had to happen for you to be conceived and born, God already knew you and loved you, had a plan for you. If that's true, I mean that's what the Bible presents as true, and that his intention is now to love you forever forward, then what are the scoffings and the mockings of fools? Compared to that? then, And and if we have that in clear view, then what also does that speak to those feelings of being forsaken or abandoned? Even if a period of time, God in all of his wisdom does allow the sense of distance between us and him. And whatever he may be doing in that, maybe... Reminding us, teaching us, whatever, whatever it is, what it can never be is that he has fully forsaken or abandoned us in the way oftentimes people would be tempted to think of it. He's not a forsaking or abandoning God. And part of why Christ went to the cross, friends, somebody, somebody did need to feel that sting in all its fullness. Christ did so that we would never have to. Now, there's one, of this, there's one part of this psalm that's always, it struck me as odd. And this is another thing that uh, I came across in this time, digging into things that I had not yet before. And so I want to share this with you. The part of this, I mean, you, you, I think most of you would say with me, and, and we're, we're going to get to... Even more description that leads us to the idea of crucifixion, and this being written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. There's all kinds of, I mean, to, to, to try to argue that Psalm 22 is forward-looking and, prof- and prophetic is, is you got a pretty hard road to hoe there. But my point is, uh, there's <clears throat> there's something in this that makes it, it it makes it hard for me to apply it to Jesus. It makes it hard. It's hard for me to imagine Jesus saying this. Okay, that's back, back up in verse six. It says, "But I am a worm." and not a man. And so normally the way I've thought about that is like, okay, well, Psalm 22 is it, is, it is still David speaking and even though we don't know the specifics from his life of what exactly he could be talking about throughout this Psalm, I mean, David went through hard times, persecuted by Saul, uh, you know, issues with the kingdom later on and all kinds, you know, warriors on all sides and people wanting to take him out. So David went through stuff, but some of the, some of the details and the way things are described in Psalm 22 is like, man, what, we for sure can't point to, oh, he's, he's talking about the, this battle with this country at this time, and this makes sense. I mean, because this very much sounds like an execution as we continue to read the psalm. So in any case, the point being, um, I, I've always thought, well, maybe that's just, that part is kind of more applying to David as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some of this has to do with ways he's feeling in his life, but it also applies to Jesus forward. So it's that, that near and far fulfillment. And, and that may still be some of it. That may have been the way David understood it as he was writing it. I don't think David knew all the details of what he was foreshadowing prophetically. It seems to be true of many of Old Testament prophets. But what is this? this I am a worm and not a man. I, there's something interesting I just wanna show you. I don't, know, I don't know how much it means. But I think it means something, okay? The word for worm uh, the more kind of broad word for worm, particularly in Hebrew, is rima. And that's kind of a generic term for like a maggot or a worm, okay? But there's this other word, it's the word used here, okay? That word is tola ef, tola ef, or tola ef. My Hebrew pronunciation is not that great. If you wanna know how to actually pronounce that, go see Pastor Andrew, okay? But it's very close to that, something like that. And here's that, it, sometimes it's used to denote A worm in a broad sense, but there's also times where it's referring to a very specific type of worm known as a scarlet worm. And it looks more like a grub than a worm. And here's what you need to know about it. This worm, the mothers in particular, they lay eggs one time in their life. And here's the process. They climb up a tree and they affix themselves to that tree in such a way that they, it's so stuck that the only way you'd get it off is to kill it. Then it lays its eggs underneath this hard shell, which is scarlet red, to the degree that when they die, okay, uh, this this is basically the way the tabernacle curtains, the the robes of the priests. In in ancient Israel, if you wanted the color scarlet, it came from this worm, if you wanted to dye something. So it makes this super hard shell, It, it lays its eggs, then... As, as the eggs hatch, basically they consume the mother's body. That's how they grow. And then as that, as that mother dies, it's, it, this crimson-colored substance, it comes out, it's, it stains all those babies. It stains the wood it was on. And then over a process of about three days, that hard shell goes snow white and falls off the tree. Man, there's some deep stuff in the scripture. And you, look, I know sometimes you're like, man, preachers like, just like making stories up. Go look it up, man, flat out. That is the word used right here. And I, I mean, I know I w- I'm not an expert in ancient Israeli dyeing techniques and stuff, but absolutely, this is the way, if you wanted the color crimson, you got it. So you want to dye anything crimson, you were going around looking for these little pea-sized grub deals, the scarlet worm. It's either called the scarlet worm or the crimson worm. And, and look, here's what, I, I, do I need to lay all that out? It goes, up a, it goes up a tree, a fence post, some piece of wood, attaches itself to the piece of wood. You can't get it off without killing it. Then it dies and it stains that wood. And then its babies feed off of its body. And then its shell turns white as snow and falls to the ground. I mean, Isaiah said, To the people of God, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. That's even a hard one. How do you go from crimson to white? And how deep is that? Man, I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. Praise God for his word, man. You thought you knew it all, right? We get to the point, it's like, oh, Psalm 22. I've read this one before. Friends, keep chewing on God's word. Keep digging, keep seeking. So much more to consider, to contemplate, to rejoice in. So thankful for his gospel today. So thankful that just like that mother crimson worm, Jesus allowed himself to be stuck to a piece of wood, to die that I could live, to let his blood flow so I could be made white as snow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you so much for Psalm 22. God, I thank you for prophecy. It means so much to us that we can, we can read through the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and we can see over and over and over and over again where you clearly pointed forward, where you tilted your hand, where you opened up the curtain a bit so that we can see your plan of redemption. It wasn't something you came up with Somewhere along the line. But this was the plan since before the foundations of the world. Lord, that's security for us. That's safety for us. That's confidence for us. You've never had to pivot or respond. You've never had to change your mind to accommodate for something you didn't see coming. You're the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. You're the Holy One. Perfect in all you do. And thank you. Thank you that Though the wages of sin are death, and that was wage that we have all earned, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and he did all that was necessary. All that was necessary for us to have the opportunity to receive that gift by faith. Lord, help us today. Help us today not to shrink back from scoffers and mockers. Help us, Lord, not to not to curate our public image so as not to seem too zealous, too over the top. Lord, we we want to be sensible. We want to be winsome. We want to be good ambassadors of your gospel. We don't need to try extra hard to be weird because we're weird anyways, because we believe what you've told us is true, that no man, no woman can save themselves, but this is all based upon grace and faith in Christ alone. This is a peculiar message. It, it runs across the grain of every other sensibility we have. And yet, Lord, you've shown us in so many ways that it's true. And so, Lord, help us to be a people of zeal and passion that reflects the clear zeal and passion you have for us. Thank you that you have that zeal and passion for us. The lengths you will go to, the patience you'll have. You're so good, so worthy.